Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Turns out that raising a man from the dead will make you a bit of a celebrity. The people of Jerusalem have heard about Lazarus. Supposedly, he was dead as a doornail, four days in the tomb and stinking to high heaven when this Jesus character, tears in his eyes, walked up to the grave and demanded the dead man wake up and come out. A lot of folks are saying that's exactly what happened. They saw it with their own eyes. Now, if you knew this miracle worker had come to town, wouldn't you want to see him too? See whether the stories are true? What if the rumors were true? What if Jesus was the Messiah, the long-promised king? So in John 12, verse 12, John tells us a large crowd had gathered to meet Jesus. They had come to the city on pilgrimage. They'd come to celebrate the Passover. And when they hear Jesus is coming, they prepare a royal welcome. John tells us in verse 13, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, if we know our Bibles and our church history, we'll see that these are ways that they are proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. The people wave palm branches. It's like nature's pom-pom, right? Their ancestors had done the same thing 200 years earlier. Now, that was before Rome had become the world power. Back then, it was the Seleucids who were oppressing the Jews. They had taken Jerusalem, they had killed thousands, they put a stop to temple worship, and they set up a statue of Zeus in God's house. They were desecrating all the Jews held sacred. Until a Jew named Judas Maccabee came in with his rebel army, he sucker-punched the invaders, he reclaimed Jerusalem, and he rededicated the temple, and that's the event which Jews still celebrate as Hanukkah. And when Judas Maccabee accomplished this, the people waved palm branches, and they sang praises for their deliverer. Now, all the people there that day knew these stories. It was part of their history that they celebrated. And so this crowd here in Jesus' day surely hopes that Jesus of Nazareth will do the same thing in their day, that God will use Jesus to deliver them from their Roman oppressors and bring Israel back into power and prosperity once again. They sing, Hosanna. It's Hebrew for save us. We're begging you. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are singing Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is a song of victory. It's a story about the Davidic king, the son of David. And in Psalm 118, this king has gone out to battle and he's conquered his enemies. And he returns to triumph in Jerusalem. And he leads the people in a joyous procession to the temple where he offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God for giving him success in battle. That's Psalm 118. And so these people here, they believe Jesus too will go out and conquer their enemies. They believe that Psalm 118 is being fulfilled in their own day. And so the people see Jesus doing the things that you would expect the Messiah to do, and they're eating it up. 
But do they really understand what sort of king Jesus is? I kind of wonder if Jesus sees the people making him out to be a warrior king, a conquering king, the kind of king who might ride a war horse or chariot into battle against Rome. Jesus sees what they're thinking, so perhaps Jesus is trying to adjust their expectations when he does what he does next. John tells us in verse 14, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Now this too, Jesus does in fulfillment of biblical prophecy. The prophet Zechariah had once prophesied this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus doesn't ride a war horse or a chariot. He rides a donkey. He doesn't come as an aggressor, as a conqueror of nations. He comes to speak peace to the nations. More Solomon than David, in this sense, Jesus is prophesying that he will rule in peace over the kingdom which his father has prepared for him. And so perhaps the donkey is Jesus' subtle attempt to readjust Israel's expectations. But we all know that subtle isn't really the disciples' strong suit, right? John tells us in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. When was Jesus glorified? We'll talk more about that in a moment. Oh, so oblivious to this distinction, the crowds are treating Jesus as their conquering king, as the new David, as the new Judas Maccabee. And with every Hosanna, they beg Jesus to come and save us, deliver them from the only enemies that they care about, the corrupt chief priests or the compromised pretenders like Herod or the brutal invaders from Rome. Save us from our earthly enemies, our obvious enemies. And the Pharisees see the ruckus that Jesus is causing. They see the zeal and the fervor in the crowds. Unwitting prophets, they say to one another, Look, the world has gone after him. And indeed, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees, they think Jesus is the latest in a long line of men claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the next Judas Maccabee. Plenty of would-be Messiahs had come and gone in the past. And these violent revolutionaries had accomplished nothing besides angering the Romans. And the Romans had brutally suppressed those revolts, usually creating a lot of collateral damage when they did. Back in chapter 11, the Pharisees had gathered with the chief priests to address this Jesus problem, and there they say, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see, the religious leaders thought Jesus was planning to go to war with the Roman Empire too. 
And they knew it was a fool's errand. They'd seen it before. When the revolution failed, which it inevitably would, the religious leaders were afraid that the Romans would associate them with this Jesus guy. Jesus is going to get us all killed. Unless, again, back in chapter 11, the chief priest Caiaphas, he's unwittingly prophetic. He proposes, It is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. So the religious leaders plot to have Jesus killed. Now, the Palm Sunday crowd that we see with their palm branches and their psalms, they didn't want to see Jesus killed, but they essentially believe the same thing as the Pharisees, don't they? Jesus has come to lead us in battle against Rome. Long live the revolution. But John, the author of the gospel, wants us to ask, what did Jesus actually come to do? What was Jesus' mission according to Jesus? Well, Jesus describes it himself in the rest of chapter 12. In verse 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And perhaps the disciples say, Yeah, and the crowd say, Here, here. That's what we're singing about. The mighty king is going to stomp the Romans and it will be so glorious to see them finally get what they deserve. That's the glory that man seeks after. But that's not the glory Jesus is talking about. Look at what he says. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, wait a second, Jesus. What's all this talk about dying and getting buried in the earth? That doesn't sound very glorious. How can you fight the Romans if you're dead? How can death be glory? Jesus continues in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Why is your soul troubled, Jesus? Why would you want God to spare you from leading a glorious revolution? Don't you want to defeat the Romans? Don't you want to sit on the throne of Jerusalem and receive the praises of your people? This Palm Sunday is just a foretaste of what you could have if you defeat our enemies. Then Jesus prays aloud, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. At Mount Sinai, the children of Israel heard the voice of the Lord thundering from the mountain, confirming that Moses was his chosen servant, the one who would mediate between God and man. Here, in John's Gospel, the Father confirms that Jesus is the new Moses, the new mediator, his chosen prophet. So Israel should listen carefully to what he is saying here. Verse 30, Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, 
will draw all people to myself. All right, Jesus. Now we're with you again. All that talk about death being glory, that was kind of weird. And then we were pretty scared when the thunder talked to us. But now, this here is what we wanted you to say. You've come to judge. You've come to cast out the rulers of this world, those meddling Romans. Cast them out of our land for good. And, and yes, you'll be lifted up once you've slain every last Roman swine on the battlefield. We'll hoist you on our shoulders and we'll carry you to the palace and set you on the throne over all Israel. And, and yes, then all the nations will come and they'll have to pay tribute to you just as they did to David and to Solomon, just as the Psalms foretell about the Messiah. Now you're talking, Jesus, finally, starting to make some sense. But look at the parenthetical comment here that John includes in verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus isn't talking about a glorious revolution and a successful military campaign. Jesus is talking about his death. How will the Son of Man be glorified? In his death. How will this grain of wheat bear much fruit? By falling into the earth and dying. How will the world be judged? By their conviction and condemnation of the innocent Jesus to brutal execution. How will Jesus be lifted up from the earth? By being stripped and exposed and nailed up on a cross for all to see. This is the glorification of Jesus Christ. This is the glory of God. Do you think this is the glory that the crowds were expecting? Do you think this is the glory the disciples were hoping for? Is it the kind of glory we long for and expect of Jesus and following him? And yet, this is the glory that Jesus was pursuing. This is the reason for which he came. Because this was the only way to deal with the real problem that plagued Israel. And which has plagued every person everywhere throughout all time. You see, when we look at the world, when we look at ourselves, and we see how everything is twisted and broken without and within. So we start looking for the cause. We start trying to identify the problem. But our mistake is that we never go deep enough. We only see the presenting problem. We only see the external problem. We don't go to the root. We don't see the problem underneath the problem. We don't go to the human heart. There was a terrible tragedy at a school associated with our sister PCA church in Nashville this week. Innocent children and adults were murdered. Families and communities are left reeling in grief. I can only imagine what they are feeling this Palm Sunday. And because we don't know what else to do in the face of suffering, we start speculating about what caused this and who's to blame and how might we prevent it from ever happening again. If only security had been better. If only laws were more strict. If only different political leaders were in place. If only we knew better how to treat mental illness. And of course, there may be wise changes in these areas that we could implement. 
But addressing these surface problems will not fix the root problem. Anyone who witnesses such an atrocity can sense it in their bones. There is evil in this world. There is evil in the human heart. Sin and death are the enemies that hold sway over the deepest parts of us. Sin and death, these are the true enemies of the world. And propaganda and policies don't address those enemies. Chariots and war horses can't defeat those enemies. Who will go to war with sin and death? Who will conquer the enemies that plague our very souls? Now, for the Jews of Jesus' day, the presenting problem was the Romans. They imagine if they can kick the Romans out, Jerusalem will see her glory days once again. But, of course, their ancestors thought the same thing about the Seleucids and the Greeks and the Persians and before them the Babylonians and before them the Assyrians and before them the Philistines and before them the Canaanites and on and on and on. You can remove the earthly enemies all you want. Another will just step in to take their place. Who will go to war with the deepest enemies? Who will conquer sin and death? Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, for the ruler of this world to be cast out. And so if Jesus is not talking about the Romans, who is he talking about? Well, it turns out that chapter 12 of John's gospel goes hand in hand with chapter 12 of John's other major work, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're going to turn to Revelation 12 for just a moment because we see there the heavenly reality that is behind and above and underneath what we experience before us, our earthly experience. And Revelation 12 speaks of a great sign that appears in heaven. John sees this. And it's a symbolic story. It's not describing an actual event. It's a symbolic story. And Revelation 12 pictures a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And this woman is pregnant, and she's about to give birth. And then a great red dragon appears with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. The dragon stands before the woman so that when she gives birth, he might devour the child. And the woman does give birth to a male child, to a royal child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But before the dragon can snatch him up, the child is caught up to God and to his throne. Now by reading those images in the light of the rest of Scripture, we can see that the woman represents the whole people of God, the bride of Yahweh, daughter Zion, the church. And the people of God have been eagerly awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And this is the child that is born, the seed of the woman, the true Israelite, the chosen one. This is Jesus the Christ. And the dragon, of course, is Satan. This is made explicit in Revelation 12, 9. The great dragon, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And so Revelation 12 shows us a fulfillment of the prophecies of the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 3, 15, where God said to the serpent, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's what we see going on in Revelation 12. But you notice that when Jesus, when the seed of the woman is born in this symbolic story, he's immediately taken up to God and to his throne. So the gospel story is kind of collapsed into the ascension of Jesus. Revelation 12 is not talking about the nativity of baby Jesus, but about Jesus' second birth, his new birth into his resurrection and his ascension and his dominion with God the Father in heaven. And according to Revelation 12, the moment that Jesus ascends to the throne of his authority is the same moment that Satan is cast down from his. Revelation 12, verse 7, tells us that there was a war in heaven at the ascension of Jesus. And the archangel Michael and the other angels fought with the dragon and with his angels, and the dragon was defeated. And verse 8 says, there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And we don't usually think of Satan as being in heaven, but Satan had a position of authority in the heavenly places. We see that in the book of Job, don't we? God allowed Satan to have a certain amount of authority over the world to test his saints and to act as a judgment for humanity's sin. But Revelation 12 tells us there is no longer any place for Satan in heaven. Verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, what was the cause for this upheaval in heaven? What caused Satan to be kicked out of his heavenly seat? Revelation 12, 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. For a time, Satan was allowed to sit in a heavenly throne And that throne had a title on it, ruler of this world. But then Jesus gives his life on the cross, and he's resurrected by the Father, and he ascends into heaven, and he says to the dragon, hey, you're in my seat. That's what Jesus is talking about back in John's gospel, back in chapter 12, going back there now. Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's not talking about the Romans. He's not talking about the chief priests. He's talking about the dragon. He's talking about that ancient serpent. He's talking about the ruler of this world who stands behind all the apparent rulers that we can see. And he's talking about the deeper enemy as well, the last enemy, death itself, Sheol, the grave, who merely loans her power to earthly leaders for a time before she swallows them as well. Satan, sin, and death, these are the oppressors that King Jesus has come to battle. The crowd shout, Hosanna! They proclaim Jesus the Messiah, the conquering king. And they are absolutely right about that. They're just mistaken about who Jesus has come to conquer. 
And they're mistaken about Jesus' tactics as well. They think Jesus will conquer by violent revolution, by military might. But Jesus doesn't ride a war horse into Jerusalem. He comes humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus will conquer through humiliation. Isn't that the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard? Conquest by humiliation? But that's the Father's will. Conquer sin by being executed as a sinner. Conquer death by the death of the Eternal One. And this is the paradoxical nature of the Gospel. Jesus' humiliation is actually His exaltation. Jesus' humiliation is actually His exaltation. That's what Jesus says, isn't it? Verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. He will be lifted up. He will be exalted. But what lifting up is Jesus talking about here? He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The lifting up that Jesus is speaking about is not his ascension. It's his crucifixion. His humiliation is his exaltation. This is made more clear when we look at other places in John's gospel where Jesus speaks about being lifted up. In John 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's talking about the crucifixion. Moses attached a bronze serpent to a pole, and he lifted it up for all Israel to look upon, that they might be healed from the bites of poisonous snakes sent upon them as judgment for their rebellion. Likewise, Jesus says, he will become the symbol of judgment for sin nailed up on the cross in order that he might draw all people to himself, that all people might look upon him and be saved from the true serpent, saved from sin and death. Jesus is lifted up as the serpent in the wilderness when he is lifted up on his cross. In John chapter 8, Jesus tells the Pharisees that he comes from the Father, that if they knew the Father, they would know Him. But they didn't believe Him. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. When did the Jews lift Jesus up? When they delivered Him to Pilate and shouted, Crucify Him. The lifting up of Jesus is His crucifixion. His humiliation is His exaltation. His cross is His glory. The chief priests couldn't see it. The Pharisees couldn't see it. The crowds couldn't see it. John 12, 37 says, Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. And now pay attention to the reason that John gives for this. Why didn't the people believe Jesus? Verse 38 so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John says, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Israel did not believe because God prevented them from doing so. He did that on purpose. Why would he do that? So that they would condemn his son. 
so that they would crucify and lift up his son. Because that is the only way his people's true enemies could be conquered by the self-offering of the Son of Man in place of sinners. Isaiah elsewhere says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And so the people did not see the true glory of Jesus on Palm Sunday. That would come on Friday. The people of Jesus' day could not see Jesus' glory, but Isaiah saw it. Verse 41, John writes, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, of Jesus. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus because Isaiah saw the glory of the suffering servant. That's actually where this language about being lifted up comes from. That's why Jesus speaks of his lifting up. He's quoting Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But how will the servant be lifted up, according to Isaiah? His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory, John says, because he saw Jesus lifted up in suffering. He saw that for the servant of God, Humiliation is exaltation. And so John goes on. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, like they put out the blind man whom Jesus healed. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And we see that distinction clearly on Palm Sunday. What is the glory that comes from man? And what is the glory that comes from God? The people of Israel were seeking the glory that comes from man. A mighty warrior king who would crush their presenting problems. Conquer the enemies they could see. And take the earthly throne and sit on it. At least for a few years. Until the next enemy came along. But Jesus was seeking the glory that comes from God. The glory that doesn't make sense to men because it is humiliation. It is defeat. It is death. But Jesus was seeking the glory that comes from God. The glory that humbles itself to be exalted. The glory that comes from giving oneself to defeat the deeper enemies. The truer enemies of Satan, sin, and death. Jesus was seeking the glory that casts out the ruler of this world. The glory that sees Satan fall from heaven like lightning. The glory of the grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies, but is then lifted up and glorified into the bread of heaven, which gives life to the world. This is the glory that John saw in Revelation 12 when he saw the seed of the woman kick the dragon out of heaven. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser has been thrown down. 
And so we behold the glory, the true glory of the coming king in his cross. And we cry, Hosanna, save us. We pray, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, your soul was troubled. You could have been saved from that hour. But instead, you went humbly to your lifting up. As a suffering servant, you poured out your soul to death. You were numbered with us transgressors. This is your glory. And for your glory, you have been raised and ascended into heaven, the victorious conqueror of Satan, sin, and death. You tell us, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. So grant us faith and humility to render suffering service to you. Make us to abide in you. Raise us up on the last day that we may be where you are. In your name we pray. Amen.